Welcome to the initial episode of A Glass of This, a podcast devoted to Idaho's growing beer, cider, wine, and spirits industry. I'm your host, Walt Huntsman. In this premiere episode, I'll share a conversation I had in September with Gary and Martha Cunningham of Three Horse Ranch Vineyards. Among other things, we'll talk about what made them choose the Eagle Foothills and what makes it a unique grape-growing and wine-producing area. We'll also talk about the effort to create the Eagle Foothills American Venticultural Area, or AVA, and its potential for growth. Gary and Martha will also talk with me about the potential for the area to become a wine tourism destination and about an unusual planting method Three Horse Ranch is using to help it produce what it believes will be Idaho's first quality Pinot Noir. That's all coming up in our conversation. But first, let's look at some news from the world of alcohol. The Press Democrat in Santa Rosa, California, reports that the Coppola family's wine operation has acquired the 42-acre Vista Hills Vineyard in Oregon's Willamette Valley for an undisclosed price. They're the latest California vintner to invest in Oregon. Coppola will use the property for a new premium label. The company will not build a winery to crush the fruit, and instead will rely on a third-party winery. According to Decanter.com, some UK winemakers face storage headaches following a bumper crop in 2018. Both quality and quantity are expected to be high for English wine in 2018, following a summer heat wave. A Sussex-based winery predicts it will produce more than 1 million bottles from this year's harvest, the first time it has reached that production milestone. In his column for Decanter Magazine's November issue, Andrew Jefford looks at the growing crossover between cannabis and the drinks world. He predicts legislative changes regarding cannabis over the next 50 years, increasing the potential for cannabis-based drinks. Constellation Brands, owner of Robert Mondavi and other wine brands, upped its investment in Canadian cannabis producer Canopy Growth and has an option to take a controlling stake in three years. TheSpiritsBusiness.com reports that a 1960 bottle of Karuizawa 52-year-old Japanese whiskey is forecast to fetch as much as $175,000 when it goes up for auction November 16th in Hong Kong. Earlier this month, a bottle of the Macallan Valerio Adami 1926 60-year-old Scotch whiskey set a new world record after selling for $1.1 million at auction in Edinburgh. The only bottle of the Macallan 1926 60-year-old scotch to have been hand-painted by Irish artist Michael Dillon is expected to sell for $1.3 million when it is auctioned next month. From the international edition of the DrinksBusiness.com, Elon Musk, Tesla's CEO, wants to trademark Tesla Kila meaning what started as an April Fool's prank could become a reality. Earlier this month, Tesla filed an application with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office to trademark Tesla Kila. A similar document was filed in Jamaica in April. The trademark is for distilled agave liquor and distilled blue agave liquor. And finally, according to craftbeer.com, the 6th Northwest Coffee Beer Invitational 
is now set for January 26th at the Goose Hollow Inn in Portland. The 2019 event features 20 brewers and beverage makers who were asked to create freshly made beer with locally roasted coffee. The emphasis is on flavors and calls for an alcohol level of 7% or less. And that's a look at alcohol-related headlines. Now let's sit down and talk wine with Gary and Martha Cunningham of Three Horse Ranch. Well, the first question, a couple background ones first, but what what got you into winemaking? Well, the, um, the the real trigger was when Eagle Knoll planted some vineyards down on Highway 16, which never did produce wines, but it just kind of gave us the idea of, because we were looking into orchards and stuff out here, but um, it, it, it all of a sudden I went over to UC Davis for a few weeks and did the... Uh, viticulture uh, extension courses and stuff like that and we realized that the south facing aspects and the slope and the water and everything else that we had here was absolutely just perfect and so it was really a process of um, trying to find something that made sense for the ranch uh, long term and started to plant vineyards with the thought of opening a winery down the road but we wanted to do the vineyards first kind of the reverse of what everybody else does. Looking at the maps, uh, a lot of the vineyards and the wineries in this part of the state are, are located south of Caldwell. You guys are not. What what was it about this area that you know you thought would uh, make it good for wine? Well, you know, Walt, I think there's a lot of areas in Idaho that have been that are still undiscovered. Um, we didn't know just how great this ground was for vineyards until we got the first harvest of Syrah and Cabernet in 2007 and 2008, and you started drinking wines that were better, different, unique over what had been done in Idaho before. You know, the Eagle Foothills actually represents some of the best vineyard ground, not just in Idaho, but the whole state. And so, and in, in the Northwest. Um, now you guys started in, in 2002. Do you remember what the first one, what the first uh, varietal or... or oh, sure. Came out? Yeah, the first uh, year we planted nine acres, and it was about two and a half acres of a clone eight Cabernet Sauvignon, which is one of the most commonly planted clones in all of the Northwest for Cabernet Sauvignon. We planted Chardonnay, Viognier, Malbec, and Syrah uh, to give us... Uh, decent, you know, selection. Um, and at the time, you know, there weren't a whole lot of vineyards in Idaho, period. I mean, you know, back, this is, you know, this goes back a few years. And, you know, a lot of the vineyards that you see, um, you know, St. Chappelle and or Sawtooth had vineyards down there, but uh, they all became Washington companies by being bought out by mm. other big big corporation brands and um, then when you take the other two or three vineyards down there there really isn't that much fruit available in Idaho so one of the most restrictive things in Idaho for the last 10 or 15 years has been just lack of fruit and the agricultural side of doing vineyards is the most expensive thing you can do and so a lot of people are what we call virtual wineries where they actually don't own a single grape plant and so they have what Idaho needs is more people investing in the agricultural side so that the agricultural side can be built because to me and, and to Martha both, and I think a lot of the, if you want to call us purists in Idaho, we want to make wines out of Idaho grapes. 
Um, and, you know, we, we were just like everyone else. We were selling wine faster than we could make it out of our own vineyard. So we did purchase some fruit from out of state uh, on a few occasions, and we haven't done that for about five years now. So our vineyards have finally caught up with our ability to uh, produce our wines out of our own grapes almost 100%. Well, since you're talking about that, how, how does that differ in terms of, uh, in, in your experience, using the out-of-state fruit versus what you grow yourself? How does that affect the quality of the wine or, or um, the overall character of the wine, maybe? Well, I, it, the, the problem with it is you just if you're going to have a wine that has Idaho on the bottle, it needs to be Idaho in the bottle. And you can't really ever grow an industry when... Um, you hold a, a Idaho wine competition, and the majority of the wines that are in the bottles are not Idaho fruit. So, you know, we really need to build an industry based upon Idaho fruit and what that fruit can do. So we've become quite pure, purist thinking in the way we produce wines now. Um, we stopped, we're starting, and we're in the process for the last two years or so of pulling our wines out of the retail side so that we can focus on our wine club members and we can focus on making single vineyard estate wines um, so that they have the character of the state, they have the character of that vineyard. And I also manage five other vineyards in Eagle that I've planted and manage on a regular basis. And we take the fruit because that's all Eagle Foothills ABA fruit as well. And so we identify on those bottles what where that vineyard where that fruit came from, what was the name of the vineyard that that fruit came from. Rolling Hill Vineyards, uh, Meadowlark Vineyards, uh, One Stone Hill Vineyards, you know, those are all individual vineyards that I manage. So you're able to really, truly separate the quality of the fruit by the quality and the location of the vineyard. I've got uh, the 0-3 clone of Cabernet Franc planted here, and I also planted three acres of the 0-3 Cabernet Franc plant clone in Eagle. And we harvested them separately on the same time. They're the same grower. I'm the same guy that planted them. The clone's the same. And they made two very distinctly different wines. And so, yeah, the individual vineyards have uh, their own personality. And then it produces wines for that, of that personality of that vineyard. Since you, mentioned, since you mentioned acreage, just out of curiosity, since I don't know, and I imagine a lot of people don't know, roughly, and maybe there's not an exact number, but roughly... How much wine are you able to produce out of, say, an acre of grapes that you plant? Well, it's a little different between whites and reds. You get generally um, about 65 cases out of a ton of grapes on the white side and about 60 on the reds. And depending upon what grape varietal you're growing, if you're growing Chardonnay, you can get as much as four to five tons an acre. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're growing red wines in Idaho, uh, one of the more important things to realize in Idaho is you don't want a really large crop load. Because once the weather starts to change in September and October, that fruit's not able to ripen if the, if, the, if the plant's carrying too much fruit. And so then on a varietal by varietal basis, your Merlot, your Malbec, your Syrah, those are all going to harvest earlier. So there's less risk in them not getting to full ripeness. But things like Morbedra, Grenache, Cabernet Sauvignon, those wine grapes and Petit Verdot come to mind as really late harvesting grapes. And so... You want to make sure that you're planting the right grape rootstock in the right location that's going to ripen the fruit um, in, in the climate that you're in. So Idaho, I think, had a bad reputation for red wines specifically because a lot of grape varietals were planted in the wrong places and the fruit was not getting ripe. And so the consequence of that was that you had 
some wines that had kind of a green herbaceous, almost bell peppery kind of a style to them. Um, and that's not what you want in a bottle of red wine. I think um, growers are smarter now than they were. Much. Uh, and, and so gone are the days of overhead watering and poor canopy management. I, I think that the growers in Idaho are much more sophisticated and the result is a, a much better product in fruit that in turn makes much better wine. Yeah, the quality of a wine is not made by a winemaker. The quality of a wine is made in the vineyard. And so if you're, and it, no, no good winemaker would tell you any different. Uh, every winemaker knows that if they get good fruit, all they have to do is not screw it up. And if they get bad fruit, there's nothing you can do to make it better. You can add all the stuff in the world, but you're not going to make it better. It's just the, the quality of the fruit is everything in a bottle of wine. And you guys were at the, at the forefront, if I remember right, when, when the stories first came out of the push to get the, the Eagle Foothills ADA, which for, I had to look that up. I, I heard the term AVA, but I didn't know what it meant until I looked it up. American Viticultural Area. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say. Um, and you guys were big in the effort to get that, uh, and, and one of the driving forces. And finally, a few years ago, you got that. How big, how big a, a moment or a, an accomplishment was that to get this area designated as its own APA? Well, the first thing you have to do is give all the credit to Martha because she's the one that authored the ABA and she's the one that worked with the federal government and the uh, doctor, uh, soil doctor and geologist and stuff to create um, what the federal government requires in terms of designating this area as a unique grape growing region. And so Martha was the one that pioneered all of that and followed it through. It took about three years. Um, the the very, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier about the differences in the vineyards that we have right here in the Eagle Foothills ABA is really significant. So the reason that the government gives you a, an ABA is because they've determined that there are specific geological characteristics of that site or that region within that ABA that are distinctly different than any other growing region. And that's how you end up with the Eagle Foothills ABA. Um, the Eagle Foothills ABA actually happens to be the only ABA that is solely within the state boundaries of Idaho. With the Lewis and Clarkston ABA up north, we share that mostly with Washington and Idaho. And then the Snake River Valley ABA is Oregon and Idaho. And so, um, and, and there will be other regions that will be discovered in Idaho that will also somewhere down the road become individual ABAs as well. Once you've determined the quality of the wines that come out of that region, you can then create, if, if it's distinct enough, you can then create that application to the federal government for the ABA approval. Well, you were asking how important is that. And um, in my mind, uh, every bottle of wine that is labeled Eagle Foothills is a little ambassador going wherever it's going for Eagle Idaho, for the state of Idaho, for the Northwest region. And so um, every time we place a bottle on somebody's hand, we are, we are placing exactly this place right here within a couple miles of each other. We're, we're pinpointing where that bottle wing came from and why it's so good. So I, I see it as um, important for not just us, but for other growers in the area and the state and the Northwest what, what do you see as the potential for, you said there are areas that are still 
undiscovered. I assume that some of those may well be within the ABA itself. Uh, what do you see as the potential for growth in the in the ABA? Well, there is absolutely in the Eagle Foothills ABA there is an unlimited opportunity because there are so many south facing slopes and what the wine world calls aspect um, and the correlation of how your hillsides and the height of those hillsides and the degree of of uh, steepness on those hillsides how that moves cold air down through the vineyard and so we have done something this last year that nobody in the northwest has ever done and that is actually terrace a hillside that was pretty much basically worthless. We actually brought in a bulldozer and a G- on a GPS system, and those terraces are as flat as this tabletop are, and we planted on those terraces up above the hill. Our vineyard walk in September will be on those terraces for people to see how you can take what is basically virtually useless land, uh, nothing but sagebrush on it, and turn it into very productive, extremely good quality uh, vineyard ground. Um, as counterintuitive as it may be, you think that the higher you go, the colder it is. But the higher you go in, a, in the vineyard world, the more warm air pushes down through that vineyard and pushes all that cold air to the bottom ground. And so the higher we are, the more apt we are to ripen our fruit. And the higher that you go, our top of our vineyard is at almost 3,100 feet. And the higher you go, the more intense the UV rays are. The more intense the UV rays are, the thicker the skins and all of the polyphenols and all of the flavor of wine come out of the skins. So you want really small berries about the size of your baby fingernail, um, and you want them in loose clusters because that's where the really quality wine is going to come from. The last thing you want to do is plant on a flat area that you can put too much irrigation on, and you get this big, massive canopy and big, huge clusters of real big, big, fat grapes you, you just have a really bad skin-to-pulp ratio. The more pulp you have, the less flavor you get out of the skin. And so um, extremely important to know that in the Eagle Foothills, there are so many sites that I drive by all the time that are just absolutely fantastic vineyard sites. People just haven't quite discovered it yet. So it's really just touching the tip of the iceberg. Oh, absolutely. And um, the Great Brewer, the Eagle Foothills Great Growers Association is uh, – going to be very, very, very instrumental in, in moving all that forward. Now, that's a, that's a fairly new organization, I assume, since yeah. the ABA launched in 2015. Yeah, it's about not even a year old yet, you know, mm-hmm. and we have quite a number of members. We've had uh, meetings in different locations and uh, at different vineyard sites and introducing people to, you know, what we're growing and where we're growing it and how we're growing it. And um, the, the cross-information... Um, that's come out of those small vineyards into the Eagle Grape Growers Association meetings has been quite surprising to me. And by that, I mean how many people, how little information there is in those people's hands to make their vineyards better. And so by putting this cooperative group together, they're learning from each other. They're, they're talking about different grape varietals or talking about different clones or talking about netting and, you know, all of the different things you do just to protect your fruit, you know. And so... It's, 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 it's a group of 30-some-odd people that are all helping each other on an individual basis, and that, that knowledge is what's been lacking in Idaho in general, not just in the Eagle Foothills ABA, but there's just a real dearth of people in Idaho that actually know how to plant a vineyard. So out of those 30, and you mentioned that you manage five vineyards, if I remember correctly. How many are there currently in the ABA? Uh, individual vineyards? 
Just the, the um, five right now? Or? Well, no, there's more than the five. There's there's some that have also been planted, but they're not into production yet. Oh, okay. And so we planted uh, more vineyards here this year on the terracine. We planted more vineyards in Eagle, uh, one of the existing vineyards. Um, so then there are multiple other vineyard sites being uh, considered and the plans to plant them are, are moving forward. So the grape growers is not limited. It should be called Eagle Foothills Grape Growers and Friends. So the Grape Growers Association, I'm super excited about. It's a collaborative effort, as Gary said, uh, among the growers. But other members include... Um, Anything from um, a real estate, a real estate agent who is interested in the area, to um, chamber of commerce, um, somebody who's good at marketing that wants to help a little bit, a photographer. It's anybody who is interested in the Eagle Foothills grapes. That that's it. That's the criteria, and and whatever skills you bring to the table are welcome. Um, and uh, as Gary said, we uh, have a board and uh, we have a membership. It was uh, registered with the state in January, I believe, of this year, 2018. And um, it's fledgling and um, we encourage all comers. There's a website, Eagle Grape Growers. It's pretty easy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we certainly put a link up to it. Yes. And... Um, it, I'm very excited about it because the energy that's being generated is going to carry us forward. I met with um, the director of the um, Eagle Economic Development Committee, and she reports directly to the mayor. And she's excited about what we're doing out here and is going to I have several items on, on an agenda for her to tackle with us as a group and um, uh, the... Um, the groundswell is very exciting to watch. It sounds like maybe, I don't know, maybe within the next 10 years we could see some growth. Uh, well, it's going to happen much sooner than that. We are in the process now of, we already have the permits, and we're in the process now of building a new Custom Crush facility, Custom Crush services facility out here for the Eagle Foothills ABA growers. So we'll be able to make wine for them starting next harvest. And we know of at least one to two new wineries that are going to open up in Eagle in the 2019. So okay. there, there's going to be, you know, we are, we are in a very unique situation in that seldom is there an ABA that has one winery in it. Um, and that's the uniqueness about Three Horse Ranch and the, and the Eagle Foothills ABA right at the moment. But they're in places like California or Walla Walla, they're going to be two or three hundred uh, wineries within one ABA. And um, that's not unusual. There's probably a thousand in the Napa Valley ABA, and all of them using the reputation of the quality of the fruit that's been grown in Napa Valley for decades and decades for a long, long time. And that's exactly what Martha was alluding to a minute ago in that once you've established the quality of the wines, that reputation starts to precede everything you do. And uh, just to your left, there's a, a gift box of three bottles of wine, two different Cabernet Francs that I mentioned earlier, uh, one from this vineyard and one from the Rolling Hill vineyards, and then the Cabernet Sauvignon from this vineyard. And so as people try those wines and realize those are really, really top quality wines. Um, and when people try those and, and they realize what the Eagle Foothills ABA, the, the reputation of that fruit 
is what drives the reputation of the region. So if you're in Walla Walla and you're growing really good quality Cabernet Sauvignon fruit, you're going to require a premium price for that fruit. If you're in Napa Valley, uh, the, the Cabernet Sauvignon fruit that comes out of very specific vineyards can be literally 10 times higher than the vineyard a block down the road because they've been developing great wines out of that vineyard site for decades. And so you're your vineyard, again, going back to winemaking, winemakers are very important people, but all they can really do is take good fruit and, and just get out of the way and let Mother Nature turn it into good wine. Sort of shepherd the process. Yeah. It all feeds on itself, Walt. Um, as as we bring the fruit forward and um, Eagle Foot Hills goes out in a bottle, home on an airplane with somebody, uh it's recognized uh, across state lines in Washington. Uh, we're hoping with uh, working with the city and economic development and our grape growers group that we will be able to open tasting rooms in Eagle and that uh, restaurants and retail shops it, it's um, will follow and a hotel will follow and. You know, I'm a little bit of a Pollyanna. I, honestly, I know that as I as I look forward, but I truly believe in the wines out of this region, and I think with a little bit of effort by a lot of people, um, I, I think that in X number of years, I, I hesitate to put a number because I think it could happen faster than even I realize. I, I think that Eagle could have a vibrant, a downtown wine destination if everybody buys in and uh, I'm very excited about it I'm just very pleased it sounds like it sounds like with that vision that you could almost envision the Eagle foothills becoming if not the next maybe one of the next wine destinations it's exactly is, the idea yeah, okay. it, it already it already has become that because there are you know, when we first opened up our wine tasting room out here, there were days when we would not have a single soul because they didn't even know we existed. And now, um, it, this place gets so crazy busy, it's amazing. Um, and so, and, 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 yeah, and, and, and we're not we're not exactly around the block. You know, no. we're out in the foothills <laughs> on a dirt road. So, you know, you've got to want to come out here, you know. As you were talking, I actually had a couple of questions on my list, and I'm not sure which one to go with, but I think I'm going to go with this one. As you were talking about the quality of the wines and how they, as, as ambassadors, really, for the region. Mm-hmm. But I have a friend I used to work with a long time ago who's in California, wine capital of the U.S. as it were, or whatever, who, who, uh, who at one time told me that he didn't think that Idaho could make a good red wine. What, what would you say to someone like that? Um, actually, I would say, unfortunately, you're narrowing down your... Uh, own opportunity to find some great wines from multiple regions in the world because California is not the only place that grows good grapes. They've been very, very fortunate to have the ability to grow some really good fruit for a long time and it's certainly built up a great reputation. I think they control something like 92% of the wine market in the United States. But there are wines that we have bottled right now that are single vineyard estate wines that are very equal, as good as the California wines. I think I would say try it again. If he's formed yeah. an opinion based on old information, he needs to try it again. Yeah, if you if you drank Idaho wines 20 years ago, 
Um, I can remember drinking California wines in the 70s, and there were some pretty poor quality wines, and it was it was a kind of a, a new thing. The Napa Valley was just getting started, and I spent a lot of time hanging out over there. And there were good wines and there were bad wines, and there's still good wines and bad wines in Idaho, but I think that's that's normal. That's virtually in any region in the world. You know, you're, you're just going to have some of the wrong grapes planted in the wrong places, and no matter how hard the winemaker may try, he can't turn them into great wines, but you've, we've discovered new locations in Idaho to plant uh, Vitis vinifera rootstock and to make wines the same quality as have been coming out of the Red Mountain Walla Walla region for decades. And um, we compete head-to-head with those folks. And, you know, quite frankly, we can't make the wines fast enough. And people have discovered the quality of the grapes that come out of the Eagle Foothills. And it is different. They are different wines. They are they are completely different, bigger, more intense um Really well rounded. Really, you can you can taste the quality of the fruit in the bottle, and and that's if anybody that knows anything about good wine, that's what they should be looking for. Something I've come across, and, and something that you reminded me of a bit when when you were, as, as you've been talking, is that there seems to be among the grape growers, the winemakers in Idaho, really, for lack of a better term, almost like a fraternity. I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, support. Of, of one mm. another seems to be, which, as someone who's not involved in the wine business, strikes me as unusual. Am I am I off base on that? Or well, no. I think the Eagle Grape Growers Association is a good example of people trying to help each other be better at what they do. Uh, you know what? Uh, it's a farming community at the at the base of everything. Growing grapes is farming, and and I think if you're growing seed potatoes or grapes. You will find the farm communities, you need a piece of equipment or you need some help with something, you go to your, your community of farmers and, and find help. I, I think we are, I don't think uh, grape growing is different than any other farming product in but, that. But you don't see that much in other other industries. So it, it it's, for lack of a better way, of, I, I, for whatever reason, I was, I was reminded of like the, the scene from, the musical Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, where they're doing the barn raising, where they all come together, and I mean that's that strikes me as kind of what winemaking is, is like in Idaho. In well, and, and I think it's that way. And I think you have to put a tag on it. Some of it has to be logistical, because you know you 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 can't I can't help a guy that's a hundred miles away, but I can help a guy that's seven miles away. You know, he can come out and see my vineyard. I can go help him. I can see how he's pruning or how he's training or how much water he's putting on his vineyard. Um, there are a lot of things that you can that you can do, but a lot of it is just logistics of your the, the location. So I think on a region by region basis in the wine industry, there are going to be people within that fraternity of people in that area that can help each other because they're just simply close enough to be able to do it. You know, and so I think that lends a lot to how it happens. And, and, and again, there, there's the reason for the Great Growers Association to be formed. Now, how many how many acres are you currently do you currently have planted? About seventy. About seventy. And how how much? I, I won't. I was going to ask how much more can you grow, but I, I, maybe I should ask how much more do you want to grow if you can? Well, it's like anything else. Your your lifespan is a diminishing return. So, uh, you we have identified at least 500 to 550 acres on this ranch alone that is exceptional vineyard ground. 
And by doing the terracing, we can take things that no one ever thought of planting anything on and, and being turning that land into some very, very productive uh, vineyard ground. Um, and it also helps that we're not tearing up good farmland. You know, we're tearing up sagebrush on a hillside, you know, that it had really had no productive value to it. And so if you can conceptualize um, uh, a planting technique that allows you to plant some of those virtually unused un, with zero potential, you're, you've actually done the agricultural world a big favor as well. Now, you work, uh, at least on the webpage, it, it says you guys do a lot of work with Greg Koenig. Is he sure. still... What what does he what does his experience bring to the table for you guys? Well, I think Greg's the best winemaker that Idaho's had uh, and still is. Um, and Greg has uh, uh, twenty plus years of working with Idaho fruit, and he understands the nuances of Idaho fruit, and he understands ripening. Uh, Greg's always said that for whatever reason, and I'm sure it's a combination of the aspect that we talked about earlier, but the south-facing slopes, the higher altitude, our vineyard here, uh, all of the different grape varietals we grow, they get physiologically ripe earlier than other Idaho wineries, other Idaho vineyard sites, excuse me. And um, in Idaho and in Washington and in places where you have potential for, you know, really cool um, fall evenings, and the potential for frost, um, being able to get your fruit ripe is really, really important. And so, and I think Greg knows how to work with that fruit. Couple of couple of wine questions specific to Three Horse Ranch. What uh, in 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 the years that you've been been in, in operation, what has been for you guys the most either popular or, or best received wine that you've produced? Well, our Rome, our, we have a white Rome blend called Vivacious, and it's just a fanciful name that we put on it because people don't know what Roussan and Viognier grapes are. And so you have to give it an identity that people can recognize over and over and that they can actually pronounce. Um, and so by putting something like that on a bottle, um, you're, you're creating um, a following, if you will. We also have a Bordeaux blend called Beau Jest, which we trademarked both of those names. And Beau Jest uh, means beautiful gesture, and it's a Bordeaux blend, and, and it's what they call a left bank Bordeaux blend, which, so it's dominated always by the Cabernet Sauvignon grape. Uh, it's a blend of Cabernet Sauvignon, Malbec, Merlot, Cabernet Franc, and Petit Bordeaux, which makes it a true Bordeaux-style wine. But in the United States, you can't call it a Bordeaux. So, you know, putting Beau Jest on the label, as people start to taste that wine and start to recognize that branding, then they know that that's, a, that's the Three Horse Ranch Bordeaux. Um, and so our most popular wines um, have always been Vivacious on the white side and Pinot Gris. We, we do uh, grow an exceptional Pinot Gris here. Um, and Cabernet Sauvignon and the Beaujes Bordeaux blend on the red side. I was just listening to you say the word Bordeaux, and my mind immediately flew to France on the West Coast, on the Gironde River, exiting into the Atlantic Ocean. And when you say the word Bordeaux, you know exactly where you are in this world. And when you say Eagle Foothills, and you see it on a bottle, you know exactly where you are. And that's why it is important. But just tie it together no, nicely. That's, uh, yeah. that's, uh, perfect. Well, it's taken centuries for Bordeaux to have, or the Rhone Valley in France, 
or the Loire Valley or the Cote de Nuit region for Pinot Noir. It's taken centuries for those regions to get that type of reputation. So we are just a pinprick into the world of wine as the Eagle Foothills AVA. But as people start to recognize the quality and they like that particular style of wine that comes out of that Eagle Foothills AVA, that reputation builds itself. Now, I, I don't know the exact count, but I know you have a number of different varietals that you produce. Are there any that you haven't tried to produce yet that you hope to produce? or, or to... Well, we're actually pretty excited about that, that question because this year, for the very first time, one of the problems with Idaho and the valley and the flat areas is that it gets too hot in the summertime to grow with Pinot Noir. Uh, Pinot Noir is a very thin-skinned grape, and it requires a much cooler climate um, or shaded climate, uh, cooler evenings. So when we terraced on top of the foothills, uh, we terraced below another much larger hill. And so late in the afternoon, when the heat is at its highest, that whole hilltop gets completely shaded. And so we planted four different clones of Pinot Noir this year to be able to make a great Pinot out of Idaho, which has never been done before. It's not that we haven't grown Pinot in Idaho, it's just that it's not ever really produced a good wine. But this should be, um, this particular site, farmed properly, should be just a terrific location for Pinot. And, and, it's, and it's doing extremely well up there. The quality of the Pinot Gris gives us confidence in the quality of the Pinot Noir because they are clonally the same. So I, I think that we have every opportunity between your site prep and management and decisions, I think we have every opportunity to make a very, very nice Pinot Noir. Yeah, we make an absolute world-class Pinot Gris that has been recognized as uh, the best Pinot Gris that Idaho has ever produced for a long time. We're actually the largest producer of Pinot Gris in the state, and it continues. It's completely sold out right now. We just can never make enough of it. Now, you planted that this year. Mm -hmm. When will people, since I, I don't know how the timing works, when would people see the first bottles of... Well, uh, normally on a normal planting, uh, and this could get kind of complicated, so I'll try to make it brief, but on a normal planting, you're planting on a, what they call a vertical shoot positioning, BSP, ter ter terracing system. And I planted it the way they plant in France and the way the Romans planted it on what they call a gobelet style, head pruning style of planting. And so we will actually have fruit next fall. And we will have Pinot Noir in the bottle about a year later. So normally a four to five year uh, project, we'll do it in two to three. Okay. So it'd be much, much different. And and I've learned to plant those Gobelet style vineyards in multiple locations here in the Eagle Foothills AVA because you get much more density in the planting. And so you get higher yields and higher production by doing that kind of terracing. Um, and if you have the right slope and the right hillside, that's really the best way to farm that. I could never have farmed that new terracing up there on top the way we would conventionally farm the old vertical shoot positioning because there we can drive a tractor up and down the road. That's a very steep hill, and you're not about to drive a piece of equipment up and down it. So you adapt the planting style to the terrain that you're planting on. Now, as, as we're sitting here talking... You're about to head into harvest season. How do things look this year? They look utterly fantastic. Uh, you know, knock on wood, um, you know, Mother Nature can be pretty fickle. We had an exceptionally good fruit set this year. 
The weather has been just absolutely outstanding. Um, we're going to harvest Sauvignon Blanc Monday morning, and then we'll harvest our Pinot Gris Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And um, the clusters of the fruit are the right size. The quality of the fruit is just terrific, and the, and the yields are very, very high. And we had a good, consistent summer. And so it, it looks right now as though virtually everything will be ripe. And that's a really important thing. It's, it's very early in September, and we won't harvest uh, Morvedra and Grenache until Halloween or the first or second week of November. But that, so the, there's a lot that can happen between now and then. But when you go look at the clusters of the fruit in the evening of the even the even ripening that it's going through right now, um, the things like my Malbec and my Merlot and my Syrah are almost ready to harvest right now. I mean, they are that close. They're, they're, it's been that good of a year. I think I've asked everything I need to ask. Anything that you want to touch on? If you haven't tried good Idaho wines, and I, you, and you have tried them 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, and you were dissatisfied with them, you need to try them again because there are a much better number of good vineyard sites and better quality fruit than Idaho's ever produced before, and it's producing better wine. And for people who have tried an old brand that was kind of into mass production of wine and inexpensive sweet wines, and they were turned off by those wines, they need to get back out there and try some other Idaho wines because there's some really good products out there. Thanks to Gary and Martha Cunningham of Three Horse Ranch. You can find links for Three Horse Ranch and for the Eagle Grape Growers Association in the show notes at aglassofthis.blogspot.com. Look for new episodes every two weeks. And thanks for listening.